0: and what one thing that is particularly interesting is so often when these explorers go off to other countries and undiscovered lands we only have one side of the story so we only have their account of what happened to them and what who they met when they got there when you get to japan of course you have the japanese side of the story as well and the japanese were horrified when these stinking unwashed you know Unshaven explorers pitched up at their shores, having no knowledge of sort of Japanese courtly etiquette, you know.
1: Let's get going. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am talking to Giles Milton, the international best-selling author of 11 works of narrative history, including Nathaniel's Nutmeg and Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Giles, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem. Uh, before we start, I have to plug two things real quick. Uh, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available to order on Amazon, and on uh, Waterstones, or hopefully soon, you can go and buy it in a shop. that would be even more exciting. And also, our sponsor, ExpressVPN. You can get thirty-five percent off of twelve months of ExpressVPN if you follow the link in the description below. So, Giles, when did you first fall in love with with history? It's quite clear from from your writing that you you find it fascinating and wonderful, and you you love both people and history itself. Like, where did that start?
0: I think, you know, I was really lucky at school to have, uh, you know, everyone always wants one of those inspirational teachers. And I had one, my history teacher, Graham Behrman. Um, absolutely fantastic because there were none of the, it wasn't dates and kings and queens and all that sort of dusty stuff we, he got to the nitty-gritty of the Third Reich. He produced these, his own books, in fact, with just um, fascinating documents from the from the Third Reich. And we'd examine these documents. He'd show films. We watched Triumph of the Will, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl's propaganda movie. And I just suddenly thought, no, this is just fantastic. This, this is bringing history to life. And I think it's ever since then, I mean, Ever since I was a young child, I've just been fascinated with old things. I collected coins, I, all that sort of stuff, you know. But but having um, learnt at school that history can be completely fascinating, um, I, I think it just went from there, basically. Mm.
1: Was was it the the Third Reich that that sort of stuff that really inspired you, or was there something else that you studied that you really loved? Well, you know, what really fascinated me was actually,
0: um, was stuff that isn't taught at school because, you know, we all learn the Tudors, the Vikings, you know, you go through the whole thing when you're primary school and all that sort of stuff. And I realized, I mean, it's sort of when I came out of university that there's a whole side to our history that we never ever talk about. And one of the things is the East India Company, which was the subject of my book, Nathaniel's Nutmeg, which was, I I was just astonished that something so important in British history, and, and in, in global history as well, had gone completely unmentioned in all my time uh, in education. And then I began to look at the records and sort of what, what is there about the East India, India Company? And of course, this was a, a giant bureaucracy. They kept everything, not just the formal records, but everything, copies of, of, of letters, of diaries, everything. There's a massive stash of the stuff, you know. And um, when people, people 200, 300 years ago, when they went off to the Far East and they got up to all sorts of outrageous things, they wrote <laughs> it all down. They weren't embarrassed about it. And, and so all that stuff is still in the archive. And I realised if I was going to write a book about this, there was just everything, warts and all, you know, it was all there. Mm.
1: Why do you think that is sort of un, unmentioned in in like our general understanding of history? I
0: think perhaps because there's a sort of embarrassment about... British Empire and colonialism and everything and what we actually did around, you know, the kind of horrors we, uh, you know, perpetuated around the around the world. So I think that's one reason. You see, you go back to Victorian times, and they were immensely proud of the empire, and they were also immensely proud of the of the East India Company. And in fact, a lot of the the archives and uh, and all the source material there is, it was all kind of indexed by sort of these stuffy old Victorian professors who who loved uh, the story of the East India Company. But then, you know post Second World War and everything, all slightly embarrassed about our heritage around the world. And it got shunted under the carpet and and
1: no one really has talked about it until recently. Hmm. and there's there's a really interesting perspective actually on on that sort of era that comes in uh in sapiens actually you can see it in the background there Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> i've just spotted it as i was mentioning it and uh the his ba- the the basic theory that or the basic idea that he puts forward is that there was something about that era and that sort of culture society in in britain and in in some of the european countries that the, like inspired that that exploration and uh, I think it it's 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 weird to me that I'd never really considered the the like obviously the horrors are are awful and and whatnot but I'd never considered the the virtues of of these people who who are really like setting out to 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 unknown things in a way that we really can like understand in our in our modern yeah. society like the idea that you know we we would just set sail and be like well i wonder where we're gonna end up it like, doesn't happen you know we have our itinerary we check in online we you know we've checked our 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 hostel or hotel on airbnb or on booking.com and we, we visited the street where we're gonna come out of the airport on google street view and you know it, it the is that part of what fascinates you about about that area is the kind of unknown of it yeah, it,
0: it's, that is absolutely fascinating, and if you think, I mean, it makes you realise how miserable life was at the time. You know, if you're prepared to sail, you know, if you're going to the Far East, the Spice Islands, where a lot—that's where a lot of them were going—you're facing a sort of three-year round trip. Um, with very, very uncertain food and water supplies when you're on board. I mean, some of the tales of, of as they got round um, into the Indian Ocean, you know, the water, the barrels of water and beer that they had, they were so alive with sort of flora and fauna that they had to clench their teeth when they drank to sieve out all the all the kind of bits and animals and God knows what. So, you know, these were pretty awful voyages. There was scurvy, there was dysentery, God knows what, you know. And only about a third of the crew actually made it back home again. So it was an extraordinary sort of risk that they were taking. And yeah, so it makes you realize how how grim life was here. But also, yeah, just people were willing to take a gamble on, on sailing halfway around the world in a very dubious ship, you know. And the other thing that fascinates me um, is in these early voyages, um, that they were led by a handful of men who came from a small network of villages in the West Country, um, if from, largely from Devon. So, and they were all related. So like Drake, um, Drake, Raleigh, uh, John Hawkins, Frobes, all these great, the great names are sort of the golden age, the Elizabethan age of exploration. They're all like cousins, you know, and it, it seems extraordinary to me that the, the world was discovered by essentially one, one extended
1: family. <laughs> Do you think that was something like in the family culture that like made them all explorers, or do you think it was I don't know, like sibling or like family rivalry and be like, well, he's discovered X, Y, and Z. You know, I could do that too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they set sail. First of all, they went west, um, and they went
0: west really for fishing for cod. They wanted the the huge Newfoundland cod, uh, and so they were they were pretty, I mean, they were skilled mariners. They weren't as scared to set sail across the Atlantic. And then, of course, once they discovered that there was a continent there, uh, you know, we all know the rest of the story. Um, But um, these guys knew how to sail a ship, you know. Uh, And, um, no, I mean, like you say, it's sort of, it's extraordinary these days. If you think, you know, yeah, you go on Google Google Maps and you can see absolutely every, anywhere in the world, they didn't even know where they were going, you know. Um, but they, they were just so attuned to, you know, changes in the colour of the ocean. That meant they were getting near uh, land or, or the changes in the wind. And they could just, they sort of really, really felt it inside them, I think, you know, mm. kind of organically.
1: Mm. I mean, like, we, we probably have more of an idea of Mars than, than they did of what they were going to find on, in the new world. <laughs> No, absolutely. And also, you
0: know, look at the first, um, the first sort of colonizing expedition to the new world in nineteen in 1584, 85. I mean, they were setting sail. These guys were not just setting sail on a voyage, they were setting sail to build a new life in a land they knew absolutely nothing about. Um, and so to do that, they had to transport everything they would need. For the first year, because they needed to, first of all, they had to take their food, but they also had to take seeds and crops and blah, 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 everything they needed to plant. It's just like an extraordinary undertaking. And, you know, I, I mentioned the records of the East India Company, but also the records of that first expedition, which was sponsored by Sir Walter Raleigh. Everything has survived. So we know exactly who they were, the first colonists who, who went out to Virginia, as it was then known. Um, we know exactly what they took on board. You know, we know every record of what they did then. I think for a historian, that's absolutely fascinating that you can completely piece together their, their, the nitty gritty of their daily lives and the, and the struggle that they faced to, with, with, just, with just surviving for that first year.
1: Hmm, I can imagine some of the explorers weren't particularly enamored by the the bureaucrats who were making note of all this, but um, it's it's very useful for us trying to understand it. One of the things that strikes me about about your writing is that you you try to tell it tell history in it almost like a, a like a thriller or a, or a novel, and and it's 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 almost exclusively from like a personal perspective, or at least that's the the way the stories are framed. And like, why why do you feel that? That, well, why do you enjoy writing in that way? And why, why why does that appeal to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, someone once said about books uh, about ordinary people caught up in extraordinary v- events. And that's, that's, in a way, what it is. Tried, I like to tell the, the sort of untold stories from history um, that people won't know about. And perhaps people can identify the, with the characters because they are often, you know, from fairly ordinary backgrounds. And yet, um, and often through no fault of their own, they find themselves caught up in a totally extraordinary Um, chapter of history. And I I really like the idea of going from the personal story to open up a a big story from history. And so, I mean, one example of that is I wrote the, um, the story of a cabin boy called Thomas Pello, who was captured by the Barbary Corsairs, Barbary pirates in 1716. And he was then taken to Morocco and he was sold into slavery and spent 32 years as a slave in Morocco. And Now, this, again, you're talking earlier about what you were, where and went, taught at school. I was never taught about white slavery at school, that there were a million uh, Europeans were sold into slavery in in North Africa during the period from about 1600 to about 1800. And so um, to tell that story, I I, I wanted to, you know, tell it through a person. So I chose Thomas Pello, partly because the records, there are very good records of what happened to him. And really, then from, from his personal story, open up this period or this kind of great event in history, which is not known and, and not
1: talked about. Mm. So, where, where do you start? Like, so say you, you or w- where do your ideas generally come from? Because you, you've written about, like, uh, as, as much as you, you've focused a little bit on um, sort of 20th, or 20th century warfare, like you, you've written about things from you know, the whole expanse of history. Like where, where do you tend to start? where where do your ideas like take hold or or yeah, well,
0: well that's a very good good question i mean i spend an awful lot of time in the archives and the archives are, they're kind of fascinating it's a bit like sort of going metal detecting because you you never know what you're going to find because um if you go to the national archives uh, here in in london um you order up a file or a big box basically and you have a general idea of what's inside, but there's no index on these files. So you open it up and you just have no idea what sort of treasures uh, are gonna be inside. And perhaps there are none, and perhaps you know some days you find absolute gold dust. So in fact, for as an example, the, the book I'm, uh, I've just, which is about to come out about um, Berlin after the war, I was in the National Archives and I came across this file, this box file called Operation, unthinkable and I knew nothing about this and operation unthinkable was Winston Churchill's plan in 1945 imagine this is quite extraordinary to attack the Soviet Union so having been at war as allies with the Soviet Union for you know five years of the Second world war Churchill now that Hitler's just been defeated wants to now attack the Soviet Union and he had um um, a, a brigadier in the army, draw up the entire battle plan of how they were going to do it, the Americans and the British, to attack Stalin's thought, the Red Army in Eastern Europe, basically. And, um, and uh, you know, it gets, it gets more and more ridiculous because they realised that the, they were massively outnumbered. The Red Army had huge numbers of divisions in Eastern Europe, whereas the Americans and British had, didn't have that many. So what were they going to do? They were going to use the Wehrmacht. They were going to bring in the German army on side and the SS they were planning to use as well and um, so I mean you can kind of read this and you can't quite believe it's true, but that file, Operation Unthinkable, is in the National Archives. everything is in it all the in every detail of what they were going to do, what they're planning to do. And you, know, you stumble across something like that and you just this is completely mad you know and in fact it was it was so mad that that Winston Churchill's chiefs of staff overruled him and said, there's absolutely no way. This is just ridiculous. And so unthinkable perhaps is the right name that the operation was given. But Churchill
1: entertained it very seriously as did General Patton. Um, so yeah, fascinating stuff. What? That that it really is uh, unthinkable. It's a very apt title. Um, uh, like, <laughs> how how many of these like 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 strange sort of perhaps not obscure but just sort of uh, unknown plans, ideas, little tidbits are, are 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 like sitting still, waiting to be discovered in in the national archives of, of maybe not just Britain but loads of countries.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are there's so much stuff there. And as I said, because it hasn't been indexed, really, or very badly, um, they are waiting to be discovered. And, you know, in the research for this book, I mean, I found so many absolutely fascinating things and, and some horrific things as well. I mean, the, the British holding German prisoners in camps and torturing them, uh, that was pretty shocking stuff, complete with photos of the tortures um, in the files. Mm. Um, there were stories of... Um, senior figures in the army and the Royal Air Force who were just um, looting German treasures and taking them home with them, Um, all sorts of stuff like that. yeah, it, it, pretty pretty shocking stuff. And uh, and you know, you, you open a file and you find this, and you just think, wow, I can't believe what I'm reading. You know? And there's another great one which has gone straight into my book is Operation Sparkler. There was a massive looting going on uh, and black market going on in Berlin after the war, dealing in everything from penicillin. You know, a bit like the Third Man in in, in Vienna, mm. everything from penicillin to uh, uranium to stuff that was needed to build nuclear weapons, all this was being sold um, on the black market in Berlin for absolutely vast sums of money. And the, the British, who were occupying one set one sector of Berlin, they sent out a Scotland Yard detective to, to try and uh, investigate the, this, possibly the biggest crime in history, you know. And um, his file... Operation Sparkler, it was called. His file is in the National Archives. And I found it. Uh, Detective Inspector Tom Haywood, there he was in Berlin, um, trying to break, break this huge uh, multinational crime ring that was taking place. So again, I, I knew nothing about that before and came
1: across that while I was doing my research. Fantastic stuff. you know. How successful was he? Did he, did he manage to pin anyone down? They, um, he, he,
0: working with a small team, they did, they did, they had these sort of raids, uh, raids on various properties. But frankly, it was on such a huge scale uh, that they were unable to really break it. And it involved senior figures in, the, in both the Allied and the Soviet military. They were all, there's a you know, huge, um, the black market taking place was, was so complex and involved so many middlemen that it was really, really hard to break it. Um, but he 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 gives a fascinating insight into what was
1: going on. Hmm. So how many how many of these like, things do you come across and and you would say you kind of go oh no 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 that's going to take me too far down like a rabbit hole yeah. or or how many ideas are are like sitting there with. Uh, that you've got like little, little starts of stories perhaps that, that haven't, haven't evolved into something bigger, or do you tend to like find an idea and then stick, stick with it through to the end? Well, I've got uh, files and files of, of, of,
0: stories that I've come up with. In fact, I do a thing on Twitter called forgotten people. And it's like just little snippets of stories that I've come across, you know, over the years, but um. It's funny because often one book does lead into another one. So when I was doing um, writing Nathaniel's Nutmeg, which was about the spice uh, wars over, uh, extraordinary wars over the spice, uh, spices of the East Indies, while I was doing that, I came across the story of William Adams, which I didn't know about. And William Adams, it, it transpired, was the first Englishman to land in Japan. He, he, he was washed up there as a shipwrecked mariner in 1600. And in fact, you'll probably know the story because it became, it was the basis for the fictional story of Shogun, which was um, James Clavel's, like big novel from the, I think, from the 70s. But the, that's a fictionalised story. But the true story is even more extraordinary because William Adams was washed up there in 1600 and he, di- he ended up as a samurai in the Shogun's court. Um, and, and uh, f- you know, forgetting the fact that he had a wife in London, he remarried in Japan um, had more children in Japan, and in fact lived there uh, through to the end of his life. And what he did is then encouraged the East India Company to send out merchant ships to Japan, and opened up a complete new trade between Britain um, and Japan. So that whole story I didn't really know about, and I, I came up with it. William Adams' name kept coming up in the archives when I was researching the other book, and then I just thought, this is this is brilliant. It's a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, one thing that is particularly interesting is so often when these explorers go off to other countries and undiscovered lands, we only have one side of the story. So we only have their account of what happened to them and what, who they met when they got there. When you get to Japan, of course, you have the Japanese side of the story as well. And the Japanese were horrified when these stinking, unwashed, you know, unshaven explorers pitched up at their shores, having no knowledge of sort of Japanese courtly etiquette, you know. Um, and so it's quite, it, it's really quite interesting to read the other side of the story and, you
1: know, just what a mess these people were. Yeah, that, I, I hadn't actually ever considered how much of, of like a culture shock it must have been for a for, for both both people like for the, the the explorers arriving and the people who are who are you know being discovered um, because yeah you know, we have a fit like we can again like look up on the internet like what what are the cultural norms or we might have seen like some videos of I don't know, thailand or vietnam on on youtube before we get there or you know i i hadn't actually considered how, how much yeah how, how much of it uh, just it must have seemed like aliens washing up on your shore yeah, but one thing it's worth mentioning is that they did, um,
0: they did quite a lot of pre-planning for some of these voyages, some of them. So for example, when uh, Walter Raleigh's colony was going out um, to Virginia in 1585, Walter Raleigh sent a ship the year before, a reconnaissance vessel, and what did they do? They captured two natives and brought them back to England and because they knew they needed to learn the native language, basically. And here you have an extraordinary thing. Thomas Harriet, who was a great Elizabethan scientist, he sat down with this, one of these natives called Manteo, and he produced, over the course of a year, the first English oh, Anglo-Algonquian dictionary, which is, he actually had this dictionary, uh, he compiled this dictionary, so that when the colonists went set sail in the following year, They went there with a printed dictionary, enabling them to talk, sort of talk, or to at least know some words of Algonquian, which was the local, you know, the native language. Um,
1: So, you know, pretty extraordinary stuff. (laughs) Um, That's, 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 that's genius. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you never, you never consider these, these kinds of things. Like the language is is another completely um, like different one, but one of the things that strikes me about, about, a lot of the, the the ideas that, or the the sort of tidbits from history, or these like undiscovered people or uh, unknown stories, is that I often like look at them, like even reading just random ones on on Wikipedia. Sometimes with friends of mine, like the the one that springs to mind is the the British army officer who used to go into war with a samurai sword. Um, and playing the bagpipes, I cannot remember his name. Um, I will link it in the in the description for anyone who's interested. And I, I read or hear these stories from history, and I go, like, that would make the most stunning film. And I, that would be so much better than some of the trash that people come up with for for like Hollywood blockbusters. I'm like, like it's all there. It's it's like you you've all the motivations, the characters, the history, the 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 events like it's all written for you, and yet people choose to kind of ignore this. Why do you think that's not like more of a source for dramatizations on on screen? Yeah.
0: I mean, maybe that story is that the story of Lord Lovett's landing on on D Day because he landed with his bagp- his Highland bagpiper playing uh, playing "Road to the Isles" as he landed on D Day I mean, under fire. It's completely extraordinary. And because I did a book on D Day, there was a, you know other ones who. One landed with his um, with his hunting rifle, you know, <laughs> instead of an army, his hunting rifle is quite extraordinary. Um, and then you know, mad things like one guy I read about, he landed with a gramophone. And like that evening, on the evening of Dida, 6th of June, 1944, he had put sort of wind-up gramophone on and they're all drinking beer in the evening. And... and they're just so incongruous, these stories, when you've just read about the horror, the slaughter that's taken place, you know, that day on the beaches. And then in the evening, he's putting his wind-up gramophone on and they're listening to jazz or whatever. You know, it's it's weird. But I love those stories. And they those are what bring things to life. And they make, they make history accessible, I think, because people can identify with those weird, quirky stories.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah, being
1: able to, because you can, I, I I like the bagpipes one. Just uh, amazes me. I mean, like I, because the, the the thing I always get in in my head is that vision where there was the Germans sitting in the bunker at the cliffs at Normandy, and they they hear this weird like drone. I'm like, what, What's that noise? Like, it's not an engine. It's not, it's not a plane. It's not a, it's not a gun. And then they just see this guy like strolling up the beach with his bagpipes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and 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 like Lord Lovett said turned to him and said. Can you play "Road to the Isles" and 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 uh, Bill Millin, the piper, he just said, looked at him like, "Are you completely mad?" And he said, "No, I want I to want of the Isles' as we land. So, so um, and he became known as the Mad Bastard. In fact, Bill, uh, Bill Millin. And the reason, uh, later two Germans who were captured on that beach, Sword Beach, they were interviewed and they said they didn't shoot him because they thought he was a lunatic, basically. They thought he was mad. uh, And so they thought it would be mean to shoot him. Um, But yeah, Lord Lovett, he was extraordinary. Lord Lovett, now this is an interesting point. Lord Lovett was extremely keen to to write his own legacy in history. And so he has a prominent uh, role in the film, The Longest Day which were the great, the classic sort of war movie, The Longest Day, based on Cornelius Ryan's uh, uh, book about D-Day. Now, who was the historical consultant for Hollywood for that film? It was none other than Lord Lovett. So um, if you're the historical consultant, you can certainly write yourself a big part for the film. And so I think, uh, you know, it's quite interesting that many of the men who served under him were pretty furious that Lord Lovett had written himself big into the story and written them out of the story. So um, yeah, being, being the victor um, and being able to write the account of what happened is very important,
1: I think. (laughs) So what, what keeps you motivated to keep writing? Because, you know, as I mentioned before, you, you're, you're pretty prolific. Like you keep, you keep pumping out books with what well, you obviously history is a, a fantastic source of, 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 stories, but what keeps you motivated to keep, to keep writing, like to, to get, to, to keep, you know, discovering these, these stories and like putting them on paper for other people to, you know, to enjoy. I love, I really, really enjoy crafting a story.
0: And, and it's very interesting when you, when you're dealing with, you know, history, you've got facts that constrain you, basically that's, that they are your parameters, um, but, but you know, going for all the sort of curios, the oddities and everything, enable you to build up a story, build up a narrative, but, but also in my books, um, you know, the characters are really, really important. And so I, I read a lot around the characters. I try and find as, as much input about them as I can find. So you really are dealing with a sort of flesh and blood person. Uh, I think that's, that's really important. And also the, the lesser known stories as well, uh, uh, I think, uh, bring an added dimension. So to take the book I did on D-Day, you know, so many books on D-Day tell the story from the Allied perspective. Generally, if they're American authors, they tell it from the, they, they virtually don't mention the British at all, you know, they, <laughs> it's an American operation. And the British tend to obviously to focus on the British beaches and everything. But no one talks about the Germans or very little about the Germans. And I wanted to tell the story of the German defenders um, who, many of whom were 16-, 17-year-old conscripts and absolutely petrified, you know, when they saw the massive flotilla coming towards them. But also other other voices as well which haven't been heard. For example, that coast of Normandy is dotted with villages and they were full of people at the time of the of the D-Day landings. And I want to tell the stories um, of, you know, the, many, the mothers and the children who were there who who found themselves you know, facing the biggest naval bombardment in the history of warfare, um, and what it was like for them. Um, and in fact, many, many years ago, I'd been sent out there for the, I think it was for the, uh, the 50th anniversary, or was it the 60th anniversary, I can't remember. I was sent out there to, um, to interview a lot of the French civilians who were living there at the time. And it was absolutely fascinating to hear their stories. So I think giving a multi-perspective angle is, um, is fascinating and it hasn't been really done until recently Mm. so that's what i like to concentrate on really
1: so uh, how long does it take you to go from like like the first time you you open that file in the archive and you find operation unthinkable for example how long does it take from conception like when you first discover like your little like a little piece or a little nugget of information or a little idea to be deciding okay this this could be a full you know narrative work and then to to publication like how long does that that process take you
0: it's quite a long process i i'd say the research and writing of a book is about two years and it's sort of roughly a year is research and a year is writing although it doesn't quite it's not quite as neat as that but also it's of course um you have to persuade a publisher that, that they they want to publish this book you know um and i'm happy lucky enough to be published both in the uk and in the in the in america as well and so it has to be a story that's going to interest americans as well so there is you know there's there's always a commercial angle to these things um but but the most important thing of all is it has to be a subject that absolutely fires you with passion and enthusiasm because You know, when you read a book, you can tell if the author is absolutely passionate about the subject because it just comes across in the writing. Uh, And so I would never embark on anything that I just didn't really, really want to tell the story. Uh, That's the most important thing of all. Hmm.
1: So what is the, like, is there, is there like a particular favorite that you have, like, sitting in? you know on the on the back burner that you haven't got to yet or a story that you haven't quite understood how to like turn into a full book yet or you know something that you know is un, un, undiscussed or undiscovered as yet
0: well I've got loads of sort of half ideas I have a file of half ideas you know and uh, which uh, require more research to see if they'll work, work as a book um I don't know. It's it's difficult. It's it's great to sit down with my agent and my editor as well to to discuss these things because uh, it, it has to work for them as well. Um, but, yeah, um, I'm looking for ideas at the moment, actually, for a new book. So I've got to keep a bit
1: tight-lipped, really, on this subject. Ah, okay, I see. You want to, want to keep it nice and uh, play your cards close to your chest. So uh, then... Uh, Aside from things you're maybe working on, what is the what is the best uh, unknown story or character from history that that maybe doesn't get picked up on, even in even in your works? Like the your favorite sort of um, yeah, your favorite one that you've talked about in a in a book thus far that that is unknown or just out out of the yeah out of left field.
0: <laughs> oh gosh, um, I mean the story I I really enjoyed doing was the was the story of, uh, in Russian Roulette, which was the story of British spies working undercover in uh, in Russia just after the revolution. Um, and that's a story that uh, has not been written about very much at all. And it's absolutely fantastic um, story, real James Bond stuff of, you know, um, men living undercover in disguises. It's, you know, fantastic story. And I think that whole area, that whole period is really interesting and, um, hasn't been, there's still much more to be written about that. I mean, a character who hasn't been written about, um, and is fascinating is Maria Rasputin. Um, I didn't realise that Rasputin had a daughter, um, and she ended up living in America. No. And she ended up um, emigrating to America. And so of course, did Prince Yusupov who killed Rasputin and they ended up in a massive legal battle. Um, because, uh, Yusupov wrote this book about how what a disgraceful um, you know man Rasputin was and how he needed to be killed um, blah 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 so whole story there and then Maria Rasputin sued him for sort of black black naming uh, you know a uh, father uh, and um, so that's a sort of story I think that is you know be worth looking at these two characters who've who've lived together in you know in Petrograd and St Petersburg um, end up. Sort of doing battle in the law courts in in first in Europe and then in America. Uh, that's yeah. One I, I w- I'd like to read about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: the final two questions I had for you. Uh, where yeah. were they on my list? So right, yeah. Basically, the the, the final thing that I, I'm I'm curious to to ask you about is that you know obviously you've spent a long time studying history and people often point to to history as a as something we should learn from. And I have been trying to, like, balance this idea in my head for the past year or two, mainly, that there is a lot, obviously, we can learn from, like, historical events and past trends and things that happened and how people reacted to things in the past. And then there's this thing that that it's kind of quite like that Mark Twain quote is, like, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. And I'm curious as to from someone who studied a lot of history, how much you think we should take, how much how much, how much, much we should learn from history and how much we should try and consider it as a guide or how much we should try to ignore what happened in the past, because that doesn't mean that's going to happen in the, the future or the present.
0: Yeah, it's a very, very difficult question to answer. And in fact, where well, you've written about Brexit, but Brexit, of course, threw up this idea, which I came across time and time again, was that, you know, what would Churchill have done with Brexit? Um, and, you know, uh, Churchill made his great speech about the United States of Europe. And and people on both sides of the argument then use that to sort of justify their point of view. But um, some things you can't just bring forwards, you know, 70, 80, 90 years and say, you know, I mean, it's a bit, a bit pointless because are so many different factors involved. and. And, you know, the fact Churchill did, of course, talk of a United States of Europe, but probably with Britain not in it, you know, <laughs> uh, Britain would be outside it. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know what, what what can you learn from the past? I mean, certainly I've learned that force of personality counts for an awful lot in decision-making and really key decisions in history are made... Um, you know, sort of by a, a bunch of generally men seated round a table uh, <laughs> discussing things and coming up with things. And, you know, taking the, what I've been looking at most recently is the conferences at Yalta and at Potsdam is that Stalin was just a brilliant negotiator. Stalin may have been a monster, but he outclassed, uh, you know, Churchill, Roosevelt um, and Truman at Potsdam. And And so the... You know, there's the the idea is quite out of fashion of, of great men of history, you know. But I think that force of personality plays such a role in in decision making, and 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 that is some an area that might be worth looking at nowadays. You know, uh, when you have big big characters at the fore, um, mm-hmm. difficult. It's very difficult to answer what you, what you can learn from history. I mean, um, and how you can apply that to the present. I mean, what do you think? What what's what's your take, having written your book
1: on on Brexit? You know i mean like my my current philosophy on it tends to be that because i've been i was like playing around with a with an idea for a book that that i've kind of shelved but i've kept some of the notes i might turn them into something else but the it was focused around like what we can learn from the the almost from the ancient world, or at least from like philosophers and from from ideas like stoicism and the the, the cynics and like but very much like the sort of Roman Greek sort of era of, of history that that I find is 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 far more like comparable to our modern society than we maybe realize. But the thing that I I feel that I've I've got a a grasp on, and I, you can you can give me your take on this, is that. Okay, while the events might not be like comparable, and it's very difficult to to sort of map, okay, this happens, therefore this happens, sort of thing onto onto the the, the modern world, especially with how much like technology just generally has changed, uh, events and changed the way that, that that humanity reacts to things. I think the thing that we can like focus on is is people because people haven't changed very much in 150,000 years. Like there's very little evidence that there's any like cognitive or biological difference between us or people a hundred thousand years ago. And so I think that the thing, at least in, in, in my view, is that we can learn from the way that individuals react or, or have dealt with things and take, take some sort of inspiration or, or guidance from that rather than events themselves. What do you think?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I do. I think that's absolutely right. And that's you know why I brought up the subject of Stalin in a way, um, actually. But you know, history also we. We could learn and we often don't. And I'll take one example, which is the 100th anniversary is about to come up of the of the Treaty of Lausanne, which set in stone the idea that you can just move millions, you can move populations, basically. So the Treaty of, of Lausanne, Lausanne saw the expulsion of the Greeks from uh, Turkey and the expulsion of the Turks from Greece, this huge exchange of populations. Now, it didn't work, it was a bad idea, and yet because it's been set into an international treaty, it became something that has been done over and over again through the course of the 20th century. So you had you know, 11 million Germans expelled from uh, areas conquered by the Red Army after the war. And then, of course, you had in Yugoslavia much more recently, you had the exchanges of populations and this total upheaval of people's lives after generations of being in a place. So, you know, often we do something is done in history badly and then repeated over and over and over again.
1: Oh, yeah, that sounds like the history of, of, of humanity, really. Like we do something badly and then, yeah repeat it again and again. <laughs> so uh, final question then, um, Giles, if you wanted, to, if someone came to you and said, you know, should I go, should I study history at university? Because I was like yeah. this close. Um, I ended up doing law, um, but uh, I, I really considered it. Like, Do you? And I cannot remember who it was that said it, but there was some politician that said that we don't need historians. We don't need people studying history. I can't remember who it was, but uh, do you think there's still like a really good case for people to go and study history at, at university, or, or is there? You know, is it something people should just pursue as a hobby? Oh, I've got to say, definitely, haven't I? But um, in <laughs> fact,
0: I have a confession to I actually didn't study history at university. I was I was completely torn between doing history or uh, doing literature, English literature, and I did English literature. And actually, in some ways, I was quite pleased because. Um, had I spent three years studying intensely, maybe it would have knocked all the passion out of it. But the fact I didn't and was completely frustrated not to be doing history meant that I wanted—that's what I wanted to do afterwards. So um, yeah, but no, of course people should study the past
1: and um, and just you know enjoy it fantastic well giles uh it has been a real pleasure to get to chat to you i will put links to all the stuff we've discussed um and your books in the description below for for anyone listening um but yeah have a have a great day and um enjoy the pub on monday <laughs> brilliant thanks very much for having me on no problem thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed the show please subscribe follow me on twitter or sign up to our mailing list Thanks a lot to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN. Get lightning-fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries. Keep your browsing privacy safe with ExpressVPN and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below. Don't forget my book is now out and available to order on Amazon and on bookshop.org. Does Brexit, The Establishment Civil War. And most importantly, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.